Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, it is now the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, uh, welcome, y'all. I uh, hope everybody had a, a decent, free weekend, got out of town, did what you needed to do. Uh, we're going to close out today. I guess our little section on life and the spirit and lust and concupiscence before we start. Uh, Wednesday, looking at the states of life. Um, so today, kind of want to wrap it up by looking at the virtue of chastity and the the, the gift of the purity of heart. Um, you know, if any of you read the section from Love and Responsibility, John Paul II talks about our culture has a negative attitude towards chastity. Uh, it's seen as something repressive. It stops the development and the free, spontaneous expression of love. And in fact, in, in the hearts of some people, even resentment at being told that we can't fulfill all of our desires when we want to fulfill them and how we want to fulfill them. And that resentment or that animosity is actually aimed at the church. But the question that I think we also have to ask ourselves, or that we see a lot of people face, is, is, is chastity even possible? Is it even possible? A push for condoms for young people. Well, they're going to have sex anyhow. Why don't we have them be responsible by responsible by using condoms? And so I think we could say that it reflects a certain anthropology where the individual is not capable of self-control. They are reduced to their animalistic instincts. Although we certainly believe that diet and good health and exercise are attainable for young people, but when it comes to controlling their sexual desires, well, the culture doesn't think that's possible at all. And I think really, though, ultimately we see that in the eyes of a lot, that this idea of chastity, of, of abstinence, is something to ridicule, yes? Actually, I would say that you're wrong because to say uh, diet and health are proper is to be fat Well, oh, that, that yeah. Yeah, we don't, we wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want to be that at all. We want to embrace the bodies that we have. But the shows, the films about virginity, about chastity, uh, songs, the ways that we kind of ridicule it and throw it off, it's something that the culture doesn't value. So how do we respond? How do we as Catholics, as Christians, particularly as priests, respond. And I think we've got to do our best, as we'll see, to cast chastity in a positive light. It's not that we believe sex is bad, of course we don't, or that sexual pleasure is bad. Nor should I think we focus on, you've got to give up sex. Focus on what you have to give up, as important as that is, but as Choosing chastity is something good. Chastity is a good that we can pursue. And I've seen that, for me, is so important. It's not just about avoiding sin. If we try to say, everybody, avoid the sin. Well, eventually, because that's going to come from the exterior, people are going to give up on it. It becomes something repressive. It has to come from the inside, a positive choice. I can tell you, all right, everybody, Quit eating fried chicken and Oreo cookies and all the stuff that's unhealthy for you. Well, you can do that, but what's going to be more effective? Hey, choose health. 
be healthy, pursue healthy choices. And once you start doing that, then you're not going to want to eat those other things because they don't make you feel good. They don't make you feel healthy. So we want to be able to help people to focus on a chaste life. What does it mean to be chaste? Why is it good to be chaste, to have a pure heart? Because when people experience that, I found that it is much more effective and leads to much more human flourishing than, hey, I'm just simply giving this up and there's not really a desire for the good of chastity in my heart. So what, what is chastity? I guess we sort of begin this. And this is from the catechism. I'm going to take a fair bit from the catechism because I think they do a pretty good job of fleshing this out. Uh, paragraph 2337. Chastity means the successful integration, words going to come up a lot, of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. Sexuality, in which man's belonging to the body and biological world is expressed, becomes personal and truly human when it is integrated into the relationship of one person to another, and the complete and lifelong mutual gift of a man and a woman. The virtue of chastity, therefore, involves the integrity of the person and the integrality of the gift, unquote. So it's not just about being a, a, an animal or some cr- controlling these biological desires, these animal desires. It's got to be seen within the totality of the person, of everything we've been discussing. Person, gift, love, communion. It helps to integrate not only the the... the the spiritual and bodily desires and, and inclinations of the person, but it's also interpersonal in the way that we react with other people. So it's not emotionless. It's not like I'm, I'm a chaste person and I stand above all of these desires. No, not at all. It's not denying that we have a body. It's not denying our inclinations. It's not denying that desire for gift and communion. It's simply integrating the desires, the thoughts, and all of our faculties. And ultimately, it's about what? Not just getting things under control, not just self-mastery, it's about helping the individual person to grow in love. That vocation to love that we talked about. And so in Love and Responsibility, page 154, at least the one without the picture of the Pope on it, John Paul II or Carol Vatia says, there is no way to comprehend chastity without the virtue of love. Its task is to liberate love from the attitude of use. Remember, we talked about lust is using other person. Love is, uh, chastity is about teaching us the positive way of loving, of not using other. On 155, he says, the essence of chastity lies precisely in keeping up with the value of the person in every situation and in pulling up to this very, this value, every reaction to the value of body and sex. So, the body, we react to the body, the sex of the people that we see, the, the opposite sex. Instead of reducing them to their, their erogenous zones, we see them as a person. So the cha- chastity helps us to love and to better uh, rise to the challenge of seeing and loving the person. But in doing that, as he says, we've got to control our desires and to overcome lust confusion of the world, this idea that somehow chastity means repressing our erotic desires, restricting love. No. 
It's contrary to using another person and perfecting what we believe true love to be. And so, Father Raniero Cantalamesa, who was the preacher of the papal household, and has been that way for like 40-some-odd years, he says, Christian purity is not a refusal or a disdain of love. On the contrary, it is the cultivation of love, of true love, that is. What the world calls love is usually nothing more than empowered egotism most of the time. We talked about that. We call it love, but it's really, I want to fulfill my own sexual desires. And I'll use you in order to get that. It's this romantic, false view of love. No one lives in love without sacrifice, without renunciation. The capacity that people have to give to another is equal to their readiness to deny themselves. Eroticism is the real tomb of love because it is only an unbridled pursuit of oneself for oneself. And so, yeah, we're going to pursue love. It means we're going to have to renounce ourselves. We're going to have to die to ourselves. We talked about that. True love is putting the other person first, is willing to die to give yourself for the other person as Christ did. It's that canonic self-gift. So chastity is the virtue that is opposed to egoism, of fulfilling our own sexual desires, of putting ourselves above others. It means death to self. But more than just death to self and focusing on what we have to give up, we're going to talk about that when we get to celibacy. If all you do is focus on what you are giving up and how hard that is, then you're not making the positive choice for Christ. And that's eventually, that, that simply reacting against something or focusing on giving something up, it's going to collapse. The burden is going to become too strong rather than, hey, I love the Lord. I love the people I serve. That's what I want to go towards. And whatever it takes to help me love them better is going to be a good I want to pursue. So chastity is more than giving things up. It is pursuing a good. And that brings us to the first real aspect of chastity that John Paul II is going to talk about in Theology of the Body. John Paul II says that chastity is two elements, or two parts. Do y'all, who cares to tell me what they are? are two ways of understanding chastity, two manifestations of it. It's going to be in Theology of the Body more than it's going to be in Love and Responsibility. Because I know that y'all spent your free weekend just reading and pouring over all this, so excited about phenomenology. All right, the first one, it is a what? A habit. A virtue. The virtue of chastity. It's a habit. It's something that we do. It's a good moral habit. A virtue. Allied with what? What cardinal virtue? Temperance. 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 Here, specifically seeking to control our concupiscible desires, our sexual desires, not our irascible desires, our concupiscible desires. Um, so 2339, chastity, includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is training in human freedom. We control ourselves to become more free, so we're not slaves to our passions. The alternative is clear. Either man governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. If y'all don't believe this is true, give yourself about three years as a priest and you'll believe it's true. To see the way 
Our people with unchaste decisions become slave to their desires and make their lives absolutely stinking miserable. And the lives of everyone around them absolutely stinking miserable. Man's dignity, therefore, requires him to act out of conscious and free choice. Is moved and drawn in a personal way from within and not by blind impulses in himself or by mere external constraint. Man gains such dignity when ridding himself of all slavery to the passions, he presses forward to his goal by freely choosing what is good and by his diligence and skill effectively secures for himself the means suited to the sin. And so as a virtue, chastity, that self-mastery is something interior, a firm disposition to choose the good. More than the exterior following of the law, more than the exterior refusing sin, but the person has to change. We become chaste persons by making chaste decisions. But it's all ordered towards what? The, the gift of self, to love. John Paul II will say in certain words, you can't give what you don't have possession of. If we're all called to give of ourselves, but yet we can't control ourselves, it's like saying, hey, here are a bunch of kittens. I want to give them as a gift. But if I, the kittens are running around everywhere, tearing stuff up, I can't give you the kittens. I have to control the kittens to give them to you. Does that make sense? And so if we have our passions and our desires and our thoughts going all over the place, we can't give of ourselves. And so that's why the, the, this passage here talks about freedom. We become more free the more we control ourselves and can give ourselves that freedom of the gift. I think in a real way you could put it, you need to gain control of your sexual desires and impulses or else they're going to control you. You're going to become a slave to them. And this is simply not what we're called to do. And so I think it also goes back to something we discussed before, this question that we talked about, this minimalistic question, a question that I know y'all are going to encounter during your time as a priest. How far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend and not sin? How far can I go? How, how, do, you, how do you answer that question? How would y'all respond to that question? You're asking the wrong question. Correct. What is the right question? True, true, but I'll phrase it a different way. Can I best love this person? Yeah. What would the chaste person do? How would I best love this person? I really think it's it's sort of like, what would the chaste person do? Like we ask ourselves, well, what, what does it mean to have self-love? Well, let's look at what the person who has self-love, what, what do they, they look like? What is their life like? And so, yeah, uh, you know, what would the chaste person do? Is this going to lead to true happiness? This is going to lead to human flourishing. Uh, another thing, though, I think that it's important is when I usually find out people ask me these questions, and we're going to talk some about it, like lust and prudence in marriage, or how far can I go with my fiancé or my girlfriend, it is not just governed by the virtue of temperance, chastity. What other virtue guides this question and ought to guide a lot of discernment, particularly when it comes to these these questions of sexuality and sin. Prudence. prudence. Who said prudence? Oh, very good. Thanks a lot, Connie. You're correct. It is prudence. Is it really prudent for me 
to spend a half an hour on the couch making out with my girlfriend, getting all hot and heavy, if we don't intend to consummate the relationship? It's probably not very prudent. It's probably not very prudent to just be alone on the couch. That's what I tell people. Don't be alone. If you cannot control yourself, don't be alone. I said all the time, if you do not want to eat donuts, do not walk into the donut store. Just don't do it. Because if you're strong enough to walk into the donut store and you smell the delicious donuts and you see the sprinkles and all the donut holes and they're crispy, I, I can't resist. If I walk into the donut store, I'm going to eat donuts. If you are alone with your girlfriend in the bedroom, y'all could pray the rosary in bed all night you want. Y'all are going to do things you shouldn't do. So guess what? Don't be alone. Go somewhere else. Because yeah, with that father, I, I fell in this sin with my boyfriend. Were you, were you in the park? No, you weren't. Because that's public indecency. <laughs> you get arrested unless you get some really strange problems. Unless you're living in the French Quarter around Mardi Gras time, then some strange stuff going on there. But no, be prudent. This is not a prudent thing to do. Being alone at this time, get control of yourselves. I really think we could probably develop that a lot more, how important prudence is when it comes to chastity and simply avoiding the near occasion of sin. Go hang out at the library. Go to the coffee shop. Go play mini golf. You're sitting on the couch holding each other and snuggling. It's not a prudent thing to do. Now, um, it does not mean, as we talked about, this is going to happen overnight. Virtue is a habit. It takes a long time to build up habits. The same way the habit of playing music, the habit of playing sports. You don't. Some people may have a, a certain gift for soccer or for the cello, uh, but it doesn't mean that they don't need to practice. So get ready for a lifelong struggle. Catechism 2342, self-mastery is a long and exacting work. One can never consider it acquired once and for all. It presupposes renewed effort at all stages of life. So as I said before, when does the struggle with lust end? Three days after you're dead. All right? It'll be in the grave. Then all of a sudden it's going to end. The effort required can be more intense in certain periods, particularly when you're young, such as when the personality is being formed during childhood and adolescence. So it takes asceticism. It does take mortification, death to self, just like any good thing or habit you want to pursue. If you want to be a good football player, you're going to have to wake up really early and go practice and, and blood, sweat, and tears. That didn't help Alabama this weekend, but luckily the Georgia fans love that here. Sorry. But... It hasn't helped LSU all semester. But the truth is, this is what it takes. And sometimes you're going to fail. You're going to fail. And so there has to be um, the willingness to be able to move forward. You're, there's going to be failure. Even, uh, I saw someone the other day, Drew Brees, great quarterback. Even in his final year, Hall of Fame, he threw interceptions. He's going to fail. The greatest musicians, the greatest speakers who have practiced all their life, they make mistakes, and it's okay. You can't give up. You can't beat yourself up. This is the little way. 
I've heard me say it a zillion times. Therese's genius was, virtue gets me closer to Jesus, but failure does too. If I have a good will, I'm trying, I fail, I say, Lord, I tried, please show me your mercy, and he will. So even in these struggles with chastity, if he sees the goodwill, that we're trying to do the right thing, he's going to be patient. So listen to the next paragraph in the Catechism, 2343. Chastity has laws of growth, which progress through stages marked by imperfection and too often by sin. Man, day by day, builds himself up through his many free decisions, and so he knows, loves, and accomplishes moral good by stages of growth. And so this consistent repentance, conversion, and pursuit of the good. So I'm going to throw this out because I'm not going to teach all introduction to morals. And this is, of all the years I've taught intro to morals, there's one question that I ask that is so controversial. But I'm going to ask it to y'all, and I'm going to see what the decision is. I don't want to get completely derailed with this question, but it applies to this, this idea of growth and virtue. And, and, and growth and perfection and the laws of growth. So maybe some of y'all have heard this before. I don't know if Austin or Treville in their time have heard me say this before. Imagine that there is a pirate who is recently converted. I don't know why I chose a pirate when I first started talking about this. Pirate's bad, not a lot of self-control, but this pirate encountered the Lord, he converted his heart, and then there is a missionary of charity or whatever religious sister you want to choose. And they're both walking down the street pirate walks by first and sees a hundred dollar bill on the street and the pirate there's some booty i want it but i love jesus and he grits his teeth and he walks on by he doesn't choose it i'm that's not that money is not mine matey i'm keep going and five minutes later a missionary charity walks by and she's praying a rosary She's thinking about all the poor people she's going to help, and she sees it. And she just says, that money is not mine. I'm going to pray to the Mother Teresa that she, blessed Mother Teresa, find the person and give it to them so they can go feed the poor, and she walks on by. Which one of the two, the pirate or the missionary charity, made the more perfect moral act? The pirate? The pirate. Okay. Other responses? Probably the, the sister, because since she has the habit of it, that means she has made decisions uh, in the past that have led to it. So she's made more decisions than the pirate to reject, uh, like stealing or, or doing other things. Okay. So that habit, Who agrees with the pirate? Raise your hand. Who agrees with Mother Teresa? All right. The correct answer. I didn't say who made the more meritorious moral act. I said who made the more perfect moral act. So in the same way, who here is the person who's never played music before, and he goes and he hacks out, you know, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and he does a great job, versus the person who's been playing music all of his life and plays this beautiful sonata. Who's maybe made the more meritorious, laudable act? Possibly the person who's ever played before because it took will and discipline. But because of virtue ethics 
And because of this idea that when we practice, we get better, the more perfect, laudable one is the person who's played for longer. So it's Mother Teresa's the correct answer. Our voluntarist back in the, the corner there, uh, she's saying, good, it's good, that it's meritorious, that pirate, the Lord loves the pirate. But in the same way is that when we grow in chastity, it takes a lot of failures, but it's, it, become, it should become easier as we go. Why? Because we've built the habit. And so, yeah, the person who's just converted may look at this tempting sexual thing and have to resist it, but the person who's been at it is like, this is not going to be good for me, and he's going to walk on by. Couldn't you come at it from the lens of prudence, Father? I mean, if the pirate would have picked up that $100 bill, then you know, maybe he's going to run off and spend it in some really bad thing. Possibly, yeah, but that's pirate question 2.0. So, but yeah, but, but he, the sisters are much more prudent, at least too, but you're yeah, right. It's, it's also, that's one way of looking at it. But the thing is, is we've got it as a constant, consistent repentance. We're going to fail. We're going to move forward. But chastity is a virtue. It should become easier as you get along, but that may be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It never becomes really, really easy, but our, our mindset, our heart changes. But this is the thing. This is all from a natural perspective. That's virtue. John Paul II say, will say there is a second dimension to chastity and theology of body. And what is that? What's that second dimension? It is a gift. You can work on it all you want. We need to be chaste. But we've got to let people know that this is not just about self-discipline. It's not just about the work you put into it. From a Christian perspective, there's a supernatural dimension. That supernatural dimension is the gift of chastity, a fruit of the life in the spirit. And so that second section of Theology of the Body, so at first he's looked at, at the man of concupiscence and what concupiscence is and shame. Then he moves to look at chastity as a virtue of self-mastery. And then he really focuses on different passages from St. Paul. Paul talks about the gift of chastity as a gift of the Spirit. And so first, it's Galatians chapter 5, verses 7. The flesh has desires contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires contrary to the flesh. Now, the flesh isn't the body is bad, but it's that concupiscence of the flesh that we heard about in 1 John. And so, there's the flesh, our concupiscible desires, our fallenness, but there's also the spirit, the spirit that we were given at baptism that, that opposes that. And we as Christians need to follow the movement of the spirit rather than the movement of the flesh. Romans 8, verses 5 to 10, where Paul talks about what it means to live a life in the spirit versus a life in the flesh. Life in the flesh leads to what? At least to death. At least to death. The life of the Spirit leads to life. Verse 11, if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give you life, will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. We're going to see more about this later. We're able to live a life in the Spirit because we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The baptism, it resides in our souls. And so we need to be fanning into flame that gift that was given. We're called to live a life in the Spirit. Why? Because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5, talks about how holiness is opposed to lustful passion. And we need to be able to keep in reverence our bodies. And so John Paul II specifically mentions this gift, the specific gift that is given to us to, to live the life in the spirit, to live a chaste life, is the gift of piety. The donum pietatis, the gift of piety, which helps to hold the body in reverence. There's that word again. So we pray for the gift of the spirit. The specific gift that helps us live a chaste life is the gift of reverence. It bears fruit in freedom. But notice again that that reference to reverence. When we talked about what is the fundamental difference between the, the sacred worldview and the secular worldview is that we see sex and fertility, the body is something holy. Decries reverence for it. So let's look again at, at, at several passages here in Theology of the Body for those who have your copy and want to pick it up. Uh, it's going to be 54, audience 54, number 4, um, kind of the top of the page. We owe this completeness perhaps to nothing other than the fact that Paul considers purity not only as an ability or aptitude of man's subjective faculties as a virtue, but at the same time as a concrete manifestation of life according to the spirit, in which human ability is made fruitful from within and enriched by what Paul calls the fruit of the spirit. There's the Galatians quote. The reverence born in man for everything bodily and sexual both in himself and in every other human being, male and female, turns out to be the most essential power for keeping the body with holiness. So reverence, holiness, we've got to see him as holy. In order to understand the Pauline teaching about purity, one must enter deeply into the meaning of the term reverence, obviously understood here as a power belonging to the spiritual order, something that the Spirit gives us. It is precisely this interior power that gives full dimension to purity as a virtue. So if we're going to really understand purity as a virtue, you've got to see that gift of reverence, the gift of piety for the body. The body as part of the part of the image of God, as the sacrament of the human person, but also if you look at Theology of the Body 56.3, because the body is the temple of the spirit. And this goes back to really St. Paul, as we're going to see here. Such sins bring with themselves the profaning of the body. They deprive the woman or man's body of the reverence that it is due because of the dignity of the person. And so there's that profaning of the temple. Not just the dignity of the person of the body, but as he goes on to say, much more so the supernatural reality of the indwelling and continuous presence of the Holy Spirit in man. It's the fruit of the redemption accomplished by Christ. Mm -hmm. And so your body is no longer your own. You belong to Jesus. So because you are a temple of the Spirit, don't go ally your body with a prostitute. We've already talked about that. Because you belong to Christ. And so to do so is connecting your body, which is connected to Christ and the Spirit, in a sinful way. So it's the bottom 
a further source of the dignity of the body, namely the Holy Spirit, which is also the source of the moral duty that derives from the dignity. And so we're temples of the Holy Spirit as baptized Christians. And as a result, we should act in a certain way, not committing sexual sin, not giving ourselves over to these things because it profanes the body. Now, I think also, y'all, we kind of talked about this uh, last week. This is where modesty needs to come from. Modesty and dress in the way men and women comport themselves, but dress themselves. It, 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 I, granted, yes, your kids may want to go dress in a certain way, and parents need to say, ah, you can't dress that way. But eventually, it's going to have to come from the interior. It's not just, well, I can't wear this bikini to the beach because my mom or dad tells me not to, or because I don't want to have all these weirdos chase it after me, but instead because I realize that my body has the dignity and I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we do? We veil that which is sacred, cover ourselves. It's not shame because we're ashamed of our bodies, but it's reverencing the, the sacred, reverencing the body. And so the thing is, is if a person has no idea of the dignity of their body, maybe because they have been abused and they've been told their body's no good, or they've never been told, then how can you expect them to act or dress in a certain way? I really saw that during my time at the university. You know, a lot of times uh, young people would come and that freshman year would be dressed a certain way, would come to mass dressed a certain way. And yeah, I'd say, look, y'all, let's kind of dress properly. But eventually what happened, they began praying. They'd start going to therapy if they needed to. They got involved in the community. They come to know the Lord's love. And the way they dressed changed. They didn't dress necessarily like the Blessed Virgin Mary all day long. But it's their exterior. The body is the sacrament of the person. And so the, 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 what, the way they dressed in their body revealed their interior state. And so it takes... Formation and modesty is not just about how to dress, and John Paul II talks about that. They're going to be di- in the back of theology of, the, of love and responsibility. There'd be different standards for different times in history, but it all has to come from the interior. I have a reverence for my body. I'm going to dress a certain way. And I knew there were certain young women who would n- never go to the beach, dress like they were at spring break girl MTV party or whatever. It's because you didn't tell them you didn't tell them not to do that. They didn't do it because of your pressure, because they realized that their body was that sacrament of the interior and they had that pure heart and they were de- desiring and chasing the pure heart. Doesn't mean they didn't dress in a feminine way, but they had that great reverence. Uh, make sense? So that's the thing is is you can go and make all the rules you want, but it's all exterior unless it comes from the interior and a real desire uh, to have that reverence to the body. So both of them have to work together. For, for, to, you know, for the true thing is you can have all the discipline you want in chastity, but eventually I think it, it just becomes oppressive. To find the true freedom and the strength to really do it, because it's not easy, you need the gift of the Spirit. You need the gift of the Spirit. 
because uh, gosh, it's, it can be really, really difficult. There's so much pressure. Um, trying to do it on yourself is just not gonna. It's just not gonna work. So they need the strength to put on the new man, to live a life in the risen Christ. And, and this is the other part. The John Paul II doesn't get into too much, at least in this part, is that you give, you get the gift of the Spirit through the gift of, of piety through the Spirit, but you get a baptism. But what opens up the real channel to living a life in the spirit? It's going to be the resurrection of Jesus. So we talk so much about Jesus and our our Christian life and living a Christian ethic is based in Christ, but it's got to go back to the risen Christ. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, St. Paul says, our faith is in vain. Christ rose from the dead and he's in a spirit-filled body. He's the first fruits that we're going to share in. And so we can begin now, because we are baptized into his death and resurrection, begin to live the resurrected life here on earth, particularly those who choose celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. He's alive. We can know him. He's still acting in our life. He's not a person that we read about in history. We can really know Jesus because the Lord is still alive. And he gives us the power to live the power of the resurrection in our bodies, here and now. So I really think that without the resurrection, not only do we not have the power to live it out, but only in the risen body of Christ does purity really make sense. In one of her letters, Flannery O'Connor talks about this. She says, I've always thought the purity was the most mysterious of the virtues, but it occurs to me that it would never have entered the human consciousness to conceive of purity if we were not to look toward a resurrection of the body, which will be flesh and spirit united in peace and the way they were in Christ. The resurrection of Christ seems the high point of the law of nature. And so, granted, you had ritual purification and cultic ideas of purity and, and pagan religion and Jewish religion. But when you have the resurrection, we believe we're all destined for that. It, it gives us a different way of understanding why we should be pure. I was going to kind of ask right there, sir, is what you're saying that living in a pure way only makes sense if we believe that the body will be resurrected? Not only makes sense, it makes the fullest amount of sense for a Christian. I mean, you could, purity makes sense for a lot of reasons. You should never treat someone as an object. You could be completely pagan and understand that. But from the Christian perspective, the, the full understanding of the dignity of the body, and John Paul II will talk about it, comes with the resurrection. But where do we get the spirit? We get the spirit through the gift of the resurrection, through baptism. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then he has no power in his risen body to pour out the spirit upon us in the fullness of the spirit. And so if we really meditate on the resurrection, oh, purity makes sense. You could call it your, your final end. I mean, we're moving towards the resurrection. But I think it also says, hey, we can live that risen life on earth. What does it mean where there's no corruption, where we love purely? That somehow there's that intimate connection between resurrection and the um the resurrection of the body and living a pure life. But here is the point that I, I guess I really want to push towards that that I think, I'm not saying John Paul II doesn't say this, but I think is a much more important 
not much more important, is, is the natural development of this thought. So we have chastity as a good, as a virtue that we choose, so we can control ourselves, not use other people. We have the gift of the Spirit, the gift of piety that comes from and flows from the resurrection and our own baptism that helps us hold our bodies in reverence and hold the bodies of others in reverence, which gives us the strength to resist temptation. Very, very important. But the spirit that flows from the risen Christ not only gives us the power to live chastely. So everything in a certain sense is like, this is all ordered towards chaste living or acting chastely, which is all good. But my argument is, is it's not just enough to act chastely or to act in a pure manner. We need to actually be pure of heart. That is the gift of the Spirit that makes our heart pure. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who act purely for they shall see God. Blessed are those who, who live a chaste life for they shall see God. No, blessed are those who are actually pure of heart. Your heart has to actually become pure. And yes, in a certain sense, as we, we, we act in, in these virtuous ways, our hearts do transform. But there has to be a deeper in trans, interior transformation of the heart. We have to want to be pure of heart. Not just chaste, but pure of heart. Because only then are we going to see God. And not only, as we'll see, to be pure of heart, but to be confident and secure that we are pure of heart. Only then, I think, can real chastity flow from that that is life-giving. Otherwise, it's almost all exterior. Whatever gift or grace that you get has to almost penetrate into the depths of our hearts to transform it. Our heart has to be purified as the refiner's fire. So yeah, that process of purification is not always very pleasant. It has to burn off a lot of the dross. We have to burn off a lot of the sin. But in the end, we become pure of heart. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that we are pure of heart? And of course, yeah, it means we're focused. It means God is our number one priority. It means we don't put ourselves there. We're, we're pursuing him for a good thing. In a certain sense, no one is ever purely pure of heart. Jesus was, Mary was. But here I'm really probably talking more about purity of heart within the realm of chastity, of sexual purity, of, of looking at the other person as a, 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 an ends in themselves and never as a means to an ends. We've got to be confident of this. So... How do we understand this process of purification, of becoming pure of heart? How do we do that? I'm going to propose going to the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure of heart. What's the second part? They shall see God. So interesting. Notice, we've, we've seen this a lot so far in our class. How... This virtue of purity of heart is connected to the gift of sight. Remember the look of love, the look of lust, 
that here, somehow, purity of heart is connected, at least here, to how we see God. Connected to the gaze, connected to sight. So what does this all bring up? Well, let's go back to what we were talking about, about the story of Adam and Eve of the fall. That Adam and Eve, in original innocence, they were naked. They saw themselves as God saw them. They saw each other as God saw them. They were living in that original love in the, under the gaze of the Father. But what happens is sin enters in, and shame enters in, and they hide their bodies. We already talked about that. What does that mean? You lose the freedom of the gift. You don't fully understand the meaning of the spousal meaning of the body. But the key is that they were no longer living under the loving gaze of the Father. They weren't. They were hiding. As the question that I posed to y'all for today, that, that God becomes, whenever they hide, whenever we live in shame, not only is our understanding of God, our bodies change or the others change, but so does our understanding of God. They were no longer living under the loving gaze of God. Did God's gaze ever change? No. He still loved them. Their perception of how God acted towards them changed. But they could not see themselves as good as God saw them. So when we live in shame, oh, I'm no good. My body is terrible. I'm terrible. Nobody could love me. It's hard to give of oneself in love. Or even more, though, we begin to see God as a threat. Fear governs that relationship with God. I was afraid, so I hid myself. And so it was the gaze, not of, of so like here is the, the man, not as they saw God, bust the pure part for they shall see God, but that ability to see God is contingent on allowing ourselves to be seen by God. If we're not allowing ourselves to be seen by the Lord, if we're not living in his gaze, there ain't no way we're going to see him. So Adam and Eve, or the human person, when we choose to live in shame, to hide ourselves from God or others, we're not going to be able to see God, and we're not going to be more fundamentally see ourselves as the Lord sees us. And so we're going to live in darkness, we're going to live in shame, which points to the fact that I believe it is it was Adam and Eve, or it's our living under the gaze of the Father that enables us to see ourselves as God sees us. It's actually the gaze of God that establishes and anchors our purity of heart. They knew they were pure of heart when they were they were they were naked and they were not ashamed. As soon as they step out of that, so like, you know, as soon as they step out of the, the gaze, which brings light, here's the big creepy eyeball of God. <laughs> you step out of that into the darkness, you step out of Eden, you step out of Eden, boop, no, you don't know who you are. But also it's the gaze actually that purifies. Somehow living in the gaze of the Lord, living is grace. Because we use the word gaze. It's grace. Living in his life. That actually is very... If you have God living in your soul, guess what, people? It's going to purify you. By its very nature of being there. 
And so we live in the grace, in the gaze of the Lord, we are going to be purified. Now, compare Eve, who is standing outside of the gaze, to whom? Who is the, the one that you should compare? Mary. Very good. Yes. <laughs> you had your Mariology. So I don't know if any of you, if you read your little uh, Magnificat, you'll often see Archbishop Luis Martinez. He was the spiritual director for Conchita, who I think is a servant of God, some Mexican mystic from the early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this beautiful, somewhat rambling retreats for Conchita. A lot rambling, actually. But uh, he had some really beautiful things about Mary and living in the gaze of the Father. And this is one quote that always struck out, struck out at me. He says, The Virgin Mary attributed the great wonders accomplished in her to the gaze of the Father. For he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Mary refers to sight. In the Magnificat, he has looked with me, he has looked on his servant with favor. This is the deepest source of all graces, the infinite gaze which rests on the abyss of our nothingness. So Mary had no shame because she had no sin. She knew she was. She was confident in her identity as daughter. She was confident in her purity. And by living in the gaze, this is the gaze that established and anchored in her immaculate heart. It sustained it. And I believe also, as we'll see, the joy that flows from it. So the more that we can avoid shame and live in the gaze of the Lord. Lord, I'm here. You see me. I want you to see me and see ourselves as he sees us. The more we will be able to dispel shame and live in the purity of heart. And so it's that encountering the gaze of Christ, of course, that communicates the gaze of the Father. Encountering the loving gaze of others to not hide in shame eventually and gradually our heart will be purified. It may be painful because sometimes when we are sinning and we have to bring that sin into the gaze of God and confession, it's, it's, it's humiliating. But it also is very, very purifying. We bring our sin and all the crap that we don't like to our confessor or our spiritual director. director. It all ends up purifying. It's the, the woman, the Samaritan woman brings her shame to Jesus. He sees it in the light of the day, in the noonday light, and it's purified. But it is a gradual process. So I stumbled upon this great quote from Balthazar from his little book, Unless the Grain of Wheat. It says, holiness consists in enduring God's glance. Actually, stumbling upon this quote last week sort of summed up a lot of what I wanted to talk about today. It may appear more passivity to withstand the look of a nigh, but everyone knows how much exertion is required when this occurs in an essential encounter. Our glances or gazes mostly brush up by each other indirectly, or they turn quickly away, or they give themselves not personally, but only socially. We look at the crowd. We don't give each other that eye to eye, that gaze to gaze. So too, we constantly free from God into a distance that is theoretical rhetorical, sentimental, aesthetic, or mostly frequently pious. Oh, look how holy I am. I'm praying. And I'm not against these things, but it, it, we could put this up as a wall so the Lord doesn't see us. He sees all of our little actions, 
He sees all of our little nice things we say, but we never become vulnerable and let the Lord see us. Or we flee to him, from him, to external works. Look how much I'm doing all these works. I'm doing all this kind of stuff. Why? So we don't have to sit down and actually let the Lord look at us and make eye contact with him in prayer. And yet the best thing would be to surrender one's naked heart to the fire of this all-penetrating glance. The heart would then itself have to catch fire if it were not always artificially dispersing the rays that come to it as through a magnifying glass. I'm going to receive I'm going to show this to everybody else, but I'm never going to withstand the glance of the Lord because it hurts. It's Peter after he's fallen. What is After he denies Jesus three times, he catches Jesus' glance. Not a judgmental glance. It's a look of love, but it makes Peter repent from what he's done. Such enduring would be the opposite of the Stoics' hardening of his face. It would be yielding, declaring oneself beaten, capitulating, entrusting oneself, casting oneself into him. It would be childlike loving, since the chil- for children the glance of the father is not painful. With wide open eyes they look into his. Little Therese, he says, great little Therese could do it. Augustine's magnificent formula on the essence of eternity. We, to look at him who is looking at you. Dintem videre. This is heaven. It's the beatific vision. You're looking at the Lord. The Lord's looking back at you. This is what it's all about. We're going to see more about that as we go. And when you see God, it's beatific. It brings joy. It brings happiness. So purity shouldn't be miserable. Adam and Eve living in, in the gaze They were filled with joy. And so my argument is this, is that we are called to live without shame in the gaze. And when we do sin, to bring it in front of the gaze of the Lord, to bring it in front of his eyes, to say, I am going to live in this light and make eye contact with God, even though it sucks, even though it's painful, even though I don't like it. Because this is the way that we truly become pure of heart. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. I think even as priests, we need to have Marian hearts. Mary had an immaculate heart. What does that mean? It's a nice pious phrase. She had an immaculate heart. She was sinless. What does that actually mean? That's what I want to sort of bring this to a conclusion. And if we're going to understand purity of heart, we've got to understand Mary's heart, because she was the handmaid that she allowed the Lord to behold her. She didn't live in shame. She wasn't like Eve, and that gaze purified her. We have to live in the gaze to be more like Mary, to be sure of our identity and goodness. So I'm going to give 10 qualities in the next 20 minutes, if I can, of what that Marian pure heart looks like, of what we're called to have. And it's probably, some of it is a lot what you think it is, some of it is not what you think it is. The first is, I think, as he says, to be like Mary is to be like that child who is not afraid to behold and make eye contact with the father, who is sure of her identity, who is sure of the father's love for her, innocent, playful, joyful, not an orphan. Yeah, Balthazar, yeah. Balthazar, remember he said, he said Therese could, could look at the father. And so I'm reading this new book by that guy, Dan Allender. Uh, it's pretty good so far. It's about 
trauma and healing and all that stuff. And there's a quote in there that I really liked. He talks about whenever we are injured or we have trauma, there are different sort of iterations that we can live under. We can be an orphan, we can be a widow, we can be a stranger. And then he compares those to priest, prophet, and king. And the one on the orphan was great. He says that many orphans, and so this is the opposite of Mary. So if we want to understand spiritual childhood and how often we are orphans rather than children, that the orphan hides out of shame, many orphans struggle with delight and play because of their war with rest. But Mary could rest. Did you, ever know, did you know one of the titles of Mary was the tr- Triniculum? It was these couches that the Romans used to lie on, and it's called the Triniculum of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that the Spirit could rest in her heart. It was a resting place. My friend in the airport feels more at rest on her own, talking about somebody, she'd go to the airport to find rest, but therefore is limited in terms of the joy and delight she can experience. This is one of the deepest tragedies of an orphaned heart. Yes, joy and delight can come from being alone. We experience profound goodness from God as we hunker down with a book in front of the fire or whatever, but we are beings meant for relationship. But a heart that cannot rest cannot play. To play, one must be able to put down the sort of hypervigilance and welcome the delight and gratitude that comes from someone offering something to us we cannot give ourselves. So that's the thing. To, to be the child is to allow the Lord to delight in you. Remember we talked about love as delighting in other people? Well, if we are truly children, Mary allowed the Lord to delight in her. My soul magnifies the Lord. So he let her, she let him delight in her. Number two. Hearts called to love purely and freely. And this is a phrase which I could talk a lot more about, which I was going to, but I don't have the time. Did we talk about this yet? Possession in detachment. This is what Luigi Giussani, who's the founder, how many of y'all know CL, Community Liberation? Jasani, you've heard possession and attachment before, John? Possesso nel distacco, to possess in detachment. I have you, but I don't grasp. I don't control you. This is pure, for him, this is virginal love, this is pure love, where we, you're mine, but I'm not grasping on, I can let you go. So we have pure hearts, we can love those who have been given to us. We talked about, remember, Mary, Joseph, the gift of self, loving those who've been giving to, given to us, being tasked with that, mm-hmm. but we can let them go. So Mary loved Jesus, but can let her go back to the Father. Pope Francis actually talks about this in Patris Corday. And he talks about it under St. Joseph, but I'm pretty sure St. Joseph would have learned how to do it for Mary. He talks that, he says that Joseph is traditionally called the most chaste heart. The title is not simply a sign of affection, but a summation of an attitude that is the opposite of possessiveness. Chastity is freedom from possessiveness in every sphere of one's life. Possessive love becomes dangerous, and imprisons, constricts, and makes for misery. If we truly love someone, it's like the sing song. If you love somebody, set them free. You're willing to let people go. 
not easy, and it can hurt. Mary missed Jesus, but we cannot possess. We can't smother. A pure heart, an impure heart wants to possess. You're mine. You belong to me. And so I've often seen relationships that it's going to be hurt if a relationship breaks apart, but if it just sends you in a spiral of just despair and self-hatred, maybe there was too much possession. And so the Lord is going to continuously purify our hearts of that. That takes a long time. I do believe chaste friendships help us grow. If we look at the Marian heart, look at Mary's friendship with John and the other apostles. Not just any kind of friendship. And so the catechism says, 2347, the virtue of chastity blossoms in friendship. And so we learn to be friends with each other where there's particularly where there's no sort of romanticism or, or sexual attraction. And it's good for us to find healthy male friendship, but also friendship among the sexes, particularly for priests and religious. Even though I know I, I'm supposed to get something else I'm going to add here uh, on this, which would be a whole different class. I mean, how is it possible for priests and religious to be sisters, uh, priests and sisters to be friends? Y'all are nice to sisters. Sisters are nice to y'all. It's possible. I do not think it is a wise thing, as sometimes it can affect people's minds, to think that every priest is Adam and every sister is Eve, so y'all can't talk to each other. There's always got to be prudence as we grow in this. But look at Therese and Maurice. There is that possibility for the friendship. No, I do not think you should go looking for your own little Therese. Let the Lord send people to you. But in the parish, you're going to have to be able to deal with men and women and develop friendship in a way as a pastor. I don't know. Friendship at the seminary is great. But when you're at a pastor, you're going to people are going to be very vulnerable with you and and you're going to enter into relationships and to be able to love them in that, to, to have emotional chastity too, whatever that is and however that's defined. These things are important. What's prudent to share? What's not? But friendships help us grow. I tell you, I've seen a, a priest who is loved chastely by a religious sister or a man loved by a woman or a woman loved by a man in a chaste way helps to, to make life a lot easier because you experience a good and chaste love. Um, you know, I, I've seen this happen a lot from religious sisters that I know who love well. Being in their presence, you're, you're experiencing chaste love. Wow, this is really good for the heart. And there we want to uh, um, we want to share with others. Whole different topic. Our hearts, though, must be exposed and vulnerable. This is number four. Look at the image of the immaculate heart. Look at the image of the sacred heart. You ever know, someone noticed pointed this out to me that it's never what three was the chase friendships. So again, chase friendships. Mary and John. Somehow, John would have had his heart transformed by his friendship with Mary. Mary. Mary transformed John's heart by that chaste friendship. And so the fourth is that, notice the image of the sacred immaculate heart. Why is it whenever Jesus or Mary appear, or at least we perceive the way they appear, their hearts are, it's not like they're in the chest with a glass wall over it. You can kind of peek into it. It's outside of the chest. It's outside of the chest. Why? It shows the vulnerability. Hey, you got to put your heart out there. Shame, you're going to hide it. You can't see. You can't love if you do that. So you've got to expose it. You cannot live in hiding. Now, does it mean that you're going to go cry on everybody's shoulder? No, but there's going to be some vulnerability in that willingness to love 
and receive love, even though it can be risky. Mary said, I'm going to put my heart out there. Guess what? Sword. And that sword stayed there. And that brings number five. A Marian heart, a pure heart, means it's going to have to be pierced. Purification hurts. Whether it be the rejection of love, the purification that comes from, from the stuff people give to you, the sword through your heart is going to be for those you love who suffer. It's that growth and compassion, the willingness to suffer with others. My analogy is sometimes, I think, as a priest heart or as a Christian heart, and I know as a sister's heart, it becomes a compost bin. You know what a compost bin is? You put all kinds of trash in and you let it break down and then it makes rich soil so that things can grow in it. People are going to dump all kinds of crap on you and some really nasty stuff. And you're going to have to have empathy for them to be able to feel what they feel. And what do you do? Does it make you bitter? Hopefully not. But it will hopefully make you love them more um, and to be able to find some some hope. You know, um, did any of y'all get to read that article about the, the rape and LSU stuff that I posted? That was some disturbing stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to the, the, the victim this week and I talked to the, the, the author and she, there are several women who came forward, not as victims of this dude, but as other victims who, who saw her witness and said, listen, this is powerful. I want to come forward with what happened. Uh, but, you know, I was flattered that a lot of people thought the, the church did a great job, me, the church, whatever, by willing to stand by this person. Uh, and having to relive all this this week and then hearing some new stuff. you got to do it. This is what's going to happen. Your heart's going to be the compost bin. Mary at the foot of the cross. It's going to make your heart tender. Your net, the sword doesn't leave. Mary's always debated the sword in her heart. It doesn't like it pulled out. It stays there. But she'll bear fruit. Number six, Mary is virgin and mother. By the suffering, by the compassion, you become or she becomes the mother. And so this fruitfulness, we become father through our suffering, through our willing to love other people. And so, and even having your children and having them love you back, that really purifies your heart. I can tell you the time parents who I've seen maybe struggle with lust, they had their children and they receive love back from their children, poop, things change. Because it's that chaste love that you receive that ends up really purifying the heart. You receive the chaste love, you live in the sight of God, that really purifies the heart. Number seven, as much as it may stink and there's a sword, you can still be joyful. That's what is interesting. When, when I gave you all that little thing about what were the qualities of a person who has healthy self-image, the number one quality you all mentioned was joy. The person is joyful, not just happy, but joyful. And so if I thought about it, the people who I know are the purest of heart are the people who are the most joyful, even amidst trials, even amidst trials. So we say Mary is the cause of our joy. Why? Because you can't be the cause of something you don't have. Mary was joyful. And John Paul II alludes to it, too. The joy a person finds in possessing himself more fully, since in this way he can also become more truly a, a fully a true gift for another person. So there's a joy in loving other people fully, the delight we take in other people and being loved by them. 
This goes back to the beatifying beginning. The joy that flows from the purity of heart is the joy that Adam and Eve would have experienced. I think also, number nine, number eight, Mary's heart or the Marian heart is contemplative. There are going to be more details here. She pondered these things in her heart. Why? Because she was anchored in prayer. She was always asking for that inspiration of the Spirit. And so that's why to really have a pure heart, a Marian heart, you've got to pray. Not just say prayers, but really pray to, to be exposed, vulnerable. Lord, here I am. Here's all my garbage. I don't like it. But when you do pray, the Lord is going to change your heart. He's going to draw all that garbage out, some stuff you don't want to face, stuff from your past, and he's going to purify it. But here, though, is what I think is the most important. The reason that, particularly for priests and religious, and for Christians in general, we need to be pure of heart, is so that we can be a safe, pure place for other people. That's what we call Mary's heart, a refuge, a safe place. There have been so many people who have been used, never been loved purely, denied, who don't know what it's like. Victims of abuse and trauma. And so your heart, your life as a priest or religious can be that safe place. This is also part of the tragedy of abuse particularly clerical abuse, sexual abuse, or that the person comes to you as a safe place, but you take advantage of it. And not just priests do this, others do this. Or a person comes to you very, very broken, and you take advantage of that person. That's the worst type of betrayal. It's one that people generally don't get over. And so, but I also think that there's a lot of people who have never been loved chastely. Their parents are too narcissistic, broken, They've been used. You can't, it's very difficult to like something unless you've experienced it or pursue something unless you've experienced it. So if you've never been loved chastely and possession and attachment, then how could you want it? But when people experience that, and they will often experience through you, they'll really experience through sister, people love the sweethearts of sisters, things change. And so you are called out of the pure heart so you can be the safe place for others. Leon Bloy, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. And it's, I can explain it a lot more. But he says, I'm saying your heart, your chastity is not for you but for others. If you pursue your chastity just for yourself, that's great. But if you pursue it for others, say I want to create my heart as a safe place for other people, then things change. He says, every man... This is, Bloy is like piggy and he speaks in nice poetic language. Every man who begets a free act projects his personality into the infinite. If he begets an impure act, he perhaps darkens thousands of hearts whom he does not know, who are mysteriously linked to him and who need this man to be pure as a traveler dying of thirst needs the gospel's draught of water. See what it says? There are people out there who need us to be pure because they've never been pure. And if our hearts are mired in sin, if we don't are constantly being purified and seek repentance, then we deny them of that water. We're going to encounter them and they're thirsty, but all we have is, is, is disgusting, dirty water to give them. Because we can't love them purely. We can't see them with the eyes of Christ because we're not living, because we're living in shame. We're living outside of the light. So we can't give it to them. So if you 
whenever the temptation comes, and look, temptations come. Think of, instead of, you could think about your picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and you could think about all the rules and laws. Think about a person that you love, that has been given to you, that needs you to be pure. If you can't think of a person, think of other people down the line that you will encounter who need you to be pure. And hey, if you fall, hopefully people will be merciful and, and show you that mercy. But the gift of purity is primarily not for yourself, as we're going to see with celibacy. There, there's a dimension of celibacy there that is other-oriented. Purity is other-oriented. Mary's heart was a refuge, ours needs to be too. And then finally, as I think I alluded to, we have got to have confidence in our purity of heart. And this is, this is I'm going to do a little test here. We're going to close on this. Mary knew she was pure of heart. She knew she was, not in a prideful way. And so she knew that so she could love purely, that when she chose to love people, when she chose to look at people, that she knew she was going to change them. Therese definitely knew that. She definitely knew it. She had the power, not in a prideful way. So she was going to love these rude sisters and change their lives. Not always easy, not at all. And so there has to be a purity of heart, but there has to be a confidence in the purity of heart. How do we gain that? Well, that's for something that we may put as a question. So this is what I want to do. I want you all to take a little piece of paper, everybody here, and I don't want anyone else to see this, and I don't, I'm not going to, I just want two letters, or one or two letters. Because I have a theory or a thesis here that I'm trying to prove, and of course I can't completely prove it here. Yes or no? And I want you to fold it up, and then I, and we, you can come put it in a, a little basket. I don't want anybody to see anybody's thing. Uh, I don't know. We'll put it somewhere. You can put it on the desk or put. Yes or no? Do you? I don't want. I don't want yes question mark or no. It's either yes or no. Are you con? You individual. Are you confident that you have a pure heart? I'm talking mostly with the chastity here. Are you confident? that your heart is pure? If it's no, please be honest. If it's yes, please be honest. If it's a qualified yes, then put a no. No, I need confidence. Are you 100% confident that you have a pure heart? And then fold it up. You can put it on the desk. Put it over there in the corner so nobody sees it. I'm not, I don't want to know what you all think. Don't even do it now. Don't even do it now. Just we'll do it later because we're going to close. Any questions or comments? Well, I mean, not you know it's not 100% sure. Are you confident? Are we confident? No, no one in here is a blessed Virgin Mary, so no one has a completely pure heart. Are we confident that we have a pure heart, and that we're able to, even in our failures, that our heart still remains pure, and that we're able to love people? Or are we still sort of living in that shame? I'm curious to see what y'all think, and then maybe we'll talk about it later. All right, so that's the break for today. Does this make sense? I know I'm kind of all over the place. But the purity of heart is not just doing, it's being. And as long as we live in the, the sight of the Lord, and I think devotion to Mary is important, not just devotion, but really getting to know Mary, she purifies the heart, gaze of the Father purifies the heart, but you're doing it for other people and to be merciful to others. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who was the beginning, is now, and shall be, or without end. Amen.